after God had allowed Satan to take his possessions and then his children, Job, upon that receiving that news, we know that Job got up and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, but the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the inspired writer of the book of Job tells us immediately following that, that in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Many of you will recall that when I last preached here, the end of October, the general theme running through that sermon on Ruth and Boaz was God's purposeful sovereignty. And we noted from chapter one of the book of Ruth that Naomi had made a series of mistakes that severely impacted her life. By her own account, in verse 21, she said, I went away, but God brought me back. Actually, it's a little more descriptive. She says, I went away full, but God brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Translating the name Naomi into English, if I had asked you who in the Bible said, why call me pleasant when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me, you probably would have told me that, well, Job said that. The fact is that God brought calamity upon both Naomi and Job. In this case, or in the case of Naomi, you'll recall the primary reason, among others, was for Naomi's calamity uh, that was demonstrated to us in God, uh, was in fact God's hidden providence, the Lord orchestrating all the events in Naomi's life and the life of Ruth and then in the life of Boaz for a most glorious end. Ultimately, the birth of Jesus, our Messiah. It's my purpose this morning to demonstrate that the primary reason, among others, that God brought calamity upon Job was different than in the life of Naomi. It is also my desire that by looking closely at the first two chapters of the book of Job, anyone here today who has suffered this past year and there are several of us. We will be strengthened and encouraged to continue to fight the good fight. Pray with me. Dear Lord, I pray that the target, that the, the arrow of the truth will find the targets that you have pre-designed. And Lord, I pray that, that the purity of your word would not be injured by the infirmity of the vessel who carries it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we'll consider those times in life when our insides are not just stirred up by the disappointments that come uncontrolled into our lives. You know, news that you will not 
be getting that promotion, you this go-round, that you were very much counting on. Or news that your son or daughter was caught cheating at school and will be suspended for three days. These are indeed serious, grievous challenges that vigorously, perhaps even violently, stir us up inside. No, this morning I want to go beyond disappointments that stir us. This morning, I want to examine those rare events that shake us to the core. This morning, I want to examine being shaken, not stirred. This morning, I want to examine God's Word for real answers to the very real question of why. And the counterbalancing question of how. How should I respond to being shaken to the core? How can I respond the way I should respond when I have been so shaken? One of the important reasons the book of Job has been given to us is to answer the two, these two questions of why and how. And make no mistake, the book of Job is indeed a God-breathed, trustworthy source of instruction with apostolic warrant for its use As instruction, we can have confidence that what we examine today is not ancient myths simply to be compared to similar stories of that age. But it is the very Word of God. One place in particular, for example, that the Apostle Paul quotes from the book of Job is 1 Corinthians 3.19. Paul writes, For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Here Paul is quoting Job 5.13. And it is quite significant that Paul states at the beginning of his quote the formula for citing scriptures of his day. Quote, it is written. You recognize that this is the same formula Jesus used throughout his ministry. Three times, for example, Jesus quoted from the book of Deuteronomy in his response to Satan's temptation of him in the wilderness in Matthew Chapter 4, it is written, Jesus said. Again, it is written. For it is written. As to what we may conclude from the book of Job, I direct your attention to James 5.11. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, writes James. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful The book of Job concludes with chapter 42, demonstrating abundantly God's compassion and mercy. In chapters 1 and 2, however, it is God's sovereignty that is on display, and that is where our focus will be this morning, on God's purposeful sovereignty. Let me emphasize that God's sovereignty is always purposeful. God's sovereignty is never capricious. We will often not be given the privilege by God to know the purpose of God. In our study this morning, I hope to show you some of God's purpose in Job's life with full recognition that because the book of Job and other scriptures have been given to us to teach us some of God's purpose in each situation, that does not mean that therefore there are no other purposes which God has chosen not to reveal. In other words, we must never attribute 
motives to God, that would be terribly presumptuous. But when God does reveal his motive through scripture, we should take note and learn from it. Also, if there are any here this morning who believe that pain and suffering either do not come from God, but are only the attacks of the devil, or who believe that if pain and suffering do come from God, they can only be a form of punishment or discipline, then with respect, I hope to help you see that Scripture teaches otherwise. Let me also say that you are not alone in that belief, if you do so believe. You belong to a very large camp of evangelical Christians who would argue that pain and suffering could never come from the hand of a loving God. In my youth, I was persuaded by the logic that either God is all-powerful but unloving, in other words, he could eliminate all pain and suffering very easily, but he doesn't actually care. Or he is indeed a loving God. But for purposes we may not now understand, he cannot do anything about it. In other words, he's not actually all-powerful. But as I have matured in my understanding of Scripture and my relationship with the Lord, it is my full conviction that I tell you, neither one of these statements is true. To begin our understanding of what is going on in the first two chapters of the book of Job, I direct your attention to the book of John, chapter 9. It's a familiar story. If you have your Bibles, or not, turn there with me. And uh, <clears throat> by the way, I think it's important that you place your confidence in what Scripture says, not in what I say, and so I would love for you to be there with me. So here we are, John 9, starting with verse 1, just going to read three of the verses. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It was common belief within Judaism that one's health and wealth were God's reward for keeping God's law. And the loss of either was God's righteous judgment for falling short. Hence the completely reasonable inquiry by Jesus' disciples. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? And what did Jesus say? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Turn with me now to Matthew 19, 23 through 25, the conclusion of Jesus' encounter with a rich young man, and you know the story. A young man approaches Jesus and asks him what he must do to have eternal life. Jesus tells him that he must keep the commandments, and the man claims that he has. The man persists, however, and asks, what do I still lack? Jesus tells him to sell everything, give the proceeds to the poor, and come follow him. With this, the 
Bible tells us the man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Now starting with verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Um, <clears throat> did you notice the disciples were stunned to hear that it is actually difficult for someone wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. In their minds, how can this possibly be? When God has already shown such great favor by rewarding the rich for being so righteous. This doesn't make any sense at all. It's the rich who are being rewarded by God while suffering is a manifestation of his displeasure. Jesus once again turns their theological world upside down. Now on to the book of Job, chapter 1. I'm just going to summarize for you the first five verses. Verse 1 tells us that Job was blameless and upright, that he feared God and turned away from evil. Not a likely candidate, according to the thinking of the day, to suffer at the hand of God. Verses 2 and 3, following how righteous Job was, describe how God had blessed Job with incredible wealth. Thousands of sheep and camels, hundreds of oxen and donkeys, and very many servants. The Bible says this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Verses 4 and 5 describe Job's character as a dedicated father, devoted to children and God, continually offering burnt offerings for each of his children in the event that they have sinned. Now jump down to verse 13 where all the calamity begins. We'll come back to what we just skipped. Verse 13 through 15 tells us that his seven sons... And three daughters had gathered at the oldest son's house for a wonderful feast together. When a messenger comes and tells Job that the Sabaeans had come, stolen all the oxen and all the donkeys, and killed all the other servants, he alone had escaped. Verse 16 tells us that another messenger, immediately following the first, arrives and reports that the fire of God, fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and all the other servants. Surely, the messenger is mistaken, is he not? Job is a righteous man. Therefore, what the messenger is calling the fire of God is a mischaracterization, is it not? Verse 17 tells us that before the previous messenger had finished speaking, a third messenger arrives, reporting that the Chaldeans had stolen all 7,000 camels, killed all the other servants 
who were with them. Then in verses 18 through 19, the inspired writer tells us that on the heels of messenger three, messenger four brings word that a great wind came across the wilderness, probably a tornado, struck the house in which Job's 10 children were together, collapsing the house and killing all 10 of his children. This God-fearing man, the Bible says the greatest of all the people in the East, in one afternoon lost everything, including all of his ten children. Put yourself in Job's shoes. You have lost everything. And those beautiful babies that you raised, each one with his or her own little personality and unique smile, a peculiar laugh, dead, gone, forever. What do you do with that? As you bend over with such emotional agony and plaintive wailing that you almost throw up and you you almost faint because you can't breathe. You don't sleep that night. And you don't sleep the next night either. At some point, and you don't know when because you've lost all sense of time, you recover just barely, and you want to know why. Why? The preacher of Ecclesiastes takes practically the whole book, inspecting and analyzing life from his perspective under the sun. We know from the book of Ecclesiastes that the answer to the question why will not be found under the sun. The book of Job teaches us that the answer is located in heaven. Now to go back to Job 1, 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
Look now again at verse 9 and following. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Here Satan insinuates that beneath Job's outward appearance are motives less noble than his love for God. Satan claims it's only because you've given Job so much stuff that he goes through the motions of reverence for you. It's not you he values. It's all the stuff you've given him. All the sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys, wealth practically beyond measure, and ten fine children, not to mention his unmatched reputation of being the greatest man in the East. No wonder you take all that away and he'll curse you to your face. You're not Job's treasure. Everything else is. And that, dear friends, was a direct assault on the value of God in Job's heart. It was an attack on God's glory by claiming that Job was making the daily choice between God and his wealth and reputation, and that every day Job was actually proclaiming that by comparison, God was not valuable. Now, God doesn't owe anyone, least of all Satan, an answer to an accusation or an explanation for his actions. God doesn't need to prove anything. He knows Job's heart, but God loves to put his glory on display for all the heavenly host and for the world through people whose heart really is for God rather than for health and wealth. Let's turn one more time to John 11, starting with verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus, Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary, it's kind of a by the way, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with anointment and wiped, the feet, her, uh, wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But Jesus, when Jesus heard of it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Two points. Number one, the Bible is very clear at this point where it says, this illness does not lead to death. This illness is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Point number two. Notice that little word, so, in verse six. That's a connecting word. Sometimes we hear the word for. In a stronger way, we would hear the word because. If I were to reword that, change the word order, I would, I would do it this way. Because when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. See, 
it says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So because he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, he stayed two days longer. Jesus knew what was coming. It was so that they could reap a good on the other side. But of course they didn't know. From this account, we see that it's natural to avoid pain and suffering and death. But our priorities are so often not God's priorities. And until we stop fighting with God, stop being angry with God, and submit ourselves as clay in the potter's hands, and saturate our minds with the mind of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. No, God does not have to prove anything to anyone. But as we've just seen in John 11, God cares very much about public displays of his glory. So God gives permission to Satan to attack Job. And Job proves to Satan and his minions and to all the heavenly host and to countless people down through the ages who have this God-breathed book of Job that God was of more value to Job than even his ten children. Jesus said, Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Are your children more precious to you than God? This afternoon, if they are all killed in a car accident, will you rebel against God? What will you say to God? And what did Job do and say? Our target text for this morning, Job 1. 20 through 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And at all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. If you're like me, when things are going so well in life, when something wonderful comes to me out of the blue and I'm filled with a sense of joy and a sense that at that moment, life just cannot get any better. We can't help ourselves and we blurt out, isn't God good and then the theologian in me wants to say to me, yes, God is always good. His goodness does not depend on whether Chuck Morgan is happy or not. God is always good. 
True enough, it is good to give God glory and praise when we're happy. However, the light of our praise of God shines brightest when it's dark. As if things were not already bad enough, Job contracts a horrible skin disease that causes excruciating boils all over his body. The the Bible says from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And And his only hygiene was a piece of pottery to scrape off the pus and worms growing out of the boils. Job says in chapter 7, verse 5, my flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens and then it breaks out again. So what is happening to Job? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 tell us that Satan has again appeared before the Lord. And God has given Satan permission, this time, to attack Job's health. Focus with me on verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me, against him to destroy him without reason. Now Job has already told us, verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Even though God said to Satan, and we read it together, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Again in chapter 2, verse 6, to which I only referred, God says to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. What I'm getting at here can be confusing, so stay with me. Job says, The Lord has taken away. And the Lord said to Satan, You incited me against him, To destroy him without reason. Now here it is. What Job understands, even though he has suffered greatly at the hands of the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and the weather and who knows what caused his excruciating worm-infested boils, what Job understands deep in his heart is the absolute sovereignty of God. He does not, nor can he, understand the details. But Job is crystal clear that God is 100% in control of all things, including, for whatever reason they're happening to him, the devastating events in his life. Only because the inspired writer of the book of Job lets us see behind the curtain. Or more accurately, lets us see up into heaven. Do we learn the details and the purpose behind what's happening to Job? In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, Satan says to God, Skin for skin, all that a man has he'll give for his life, but you stretch out your hand against his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. Once again, Satan impugns 
the glory of God by attributing false motives to Job, by claiming that when push comes to shove, if Job were to be forced to make a choice between the value of his health and the value of God, Job wouldn't hesitate to choose his health. So God gives Satan permission to attack Job's health, and Job is infected with an excruciating skin disease that develops into a secondary parasitic infection, adding to the stench of his rotting flesh. It's no wonder at this point that his wife cannot stand to be around him. Verse 9 tells us, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast? your integrity, curse God, and die. Now, I believe, along with renowned pastor and author John Piper, who inspired much of this sermon, that when Job's wife told Job to curse God and die, it was one of the biggest cosmic moments of truth. You know, one of those slow-motion type of situations where everyone's holding their breath because the next words out of Job's mouth will be life-altering for Job. Those words will either affirm or deny the ultimate worth of God. They will either defeat Satan in his assault upon Job's character and God's value or Satan will win the day. So what does Job say? Verse 10. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not evil? Wow. Satan could not have been more wrong about Job. Job indeed valued God above even his own health. Satan was put to shame that day. We don't hear from him or anything about him for the rest of the book. Job has just affirmed that all things are under God's authority. After all, the Lord has done for us. Are we to fault him now? Job's rhetorical question affirms God's sovereignty and it affirms Job's stalwart trust that God is good no matter what I'm going through. In fact, what I'm going through gives me an opportunity to say to all the heavenly host and to people everywhere who have ears to hear, God is more valuable than anything else. In all of my life. The light of our praise of God shines brightest when it's dark. So let's conclude. First, it behooves us to be aware that Satan's aim is always to destroy our trust in God. If Satan can take away your trust, if he can cause you to doubt God's purposeful sovereignty in your life and thereby get you to choose anything in this world as being more valuable than God, then Satan has gotten you to do his bidding for him, which is to defame God and declare God no longer of ultimate value and worthy above all. 
Satan likes nothing more than to make God look worthless to the world. When we forsake God for the world and become angry at God because something in the world has been taken from us, we affirm the value of the world. But when we praise God, when our world is taken from us, we affirm the value and glory of God. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, the problem that John is addressing is not that by loving the world, you forfeit God's love for you. Not the problem. The problem is that your love of God has been crowded out by your love of the world. And therefore, your love of God is virtually non-existent. If anyone loves the world, John says, the love of the Father's not in him. Second, God's purpose for your life is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. That's why you were created. That's why everything that was created was created. To magnify the glory of God. This happens easily in the lives of His children when things are going great. Isn't God good? But the light of our praise of God shines brightest when it's dark. Thirdly, Satan is God's most famous demon on a leash. We saw how God limited what Satan could do to Job, first to his possessions and children only, but not to him. Then to his health, but not to his life. Satan is always and only a secondary cause in the world used by God to accomplish God's purposes. Which is why, on the one hand, God said to Satan, he is in your hand. And why, why on the other hand, Job declares, the Lord has taken away. The inspired writer of the book of Job makes certain we understand there is no contradiction here in what Job has said. The inspired writer endorses Job's interpretation of the loss of everything and the death of his children by immediately writing, in all this, Job did not sin. In other words, what Job has just said in verse 21, the Lord has taken away, is not a false claim because in all this, Job did not sin. The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away, even though it was by Satan's hand. Truly, brothers and sisters, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. 
against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. But if God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his son, his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him also graciously give us all things in all our hardships, in all our severe sufferings, in all our devastations, when the darkness is closing in all around us? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And just as the Apostle Paul continues his writing to conclude this section of his letter to the Christians in Rome, he says, I am confident of this, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor whatever's to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, not anything, absolutely nothing can separate you and me from God's love through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Pray with me, please. Dear Lord, we, we need reminding sometimes that all that occurs in our life is under and within your control. That there is not, in fact, there is not one maverick molecule in all the universe. And too, Lord, it is good to know that whatever happens in our life Number one is for your glory, and number two is for our good. Lord, we pray you'd keep us close to you. Help us not quarrel or quibble. Help us enjoy the journey. Lord, help us not only to endure, but to take joy in the sufferings that come our way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.